and welcome to Conversations With. I'm Courtney. And I'm Keith. And we are the clinical team here at Burton's Academy. With our combined passion for monitoring and ventilation, we're here to rewind and remind you on the foundations and principles used to form the knowledge and understanding in everyday anaesthesia. And in our last two podcasts of our series two, Keith and I are going to be talking about ventilation, which I know everyone has been looking forward to. In this episode specifically, we are going to talk about manual ventilation that you can do in practice without a ventilator. But does that mean you need something else to help you ventilate? And in our last episode, we'll be talking about mechanical ventilation. So when you do have a ventilator in practice. So this episode, we're literally going to walk through kind of what is ventilation? How do our patients actually breathe spontaneously? And then positive pressure ventilation. We're going to talk a little bit about anatomy of the respiratory tree. Um, and then also some tools that you can use in practice to help you ventilate your patients safely, because it's all too easy to close the APL valve and squeeze the bag and give a breath. But actually, there's more to it that we need to consider. We need to consider patient safety and also the breathing system that we are using. Thank you, Courtney. Yeah, I think this is an interesting subject. It's a massive subject. So um, I hope we can do it justice in a couple of podcasts. And I think it's like one of those things when you start talking about it, you think, well, initially, it's a really simple subject, manual ventilation. We all know how to do it. But again, it's one of those things like we've got a question. Do we really know what we're doing when we squeeze that bag? How frequently should we be squeezing it? How hard should we be squeezing it? What about the fresh gas flow rates when we're when we're ventilating? All these things really need to be considered. And, and not least, really, we've gone from an animal that you know was breathing on its own. We decided for some reason, and we'll cover that in a minute, that it can't breathe on its own anymore. It needs support, so we're going to manually ventilate. So how do we do it? I mean, you know, how much pressure do we apply? What's the volume we're giving? What time do we give that volume over? There are a lot of things to consider. So I think maybe we'll just start with normal ventilation, normal respiration, shall we say, the, the process that you and I, animals or mammals, use to breathe in and out. Um, and spontaneous is very different from, from mechanical or manual ventilation. So let's just think about um, spontaneous ventilation. Um, is that something that you would like to, maybe you you tell me your, your thoughts on the process of spontaneous um, ventilation, and I'll tell you as, a, as a, a sequence to that, what happens when mm -hmm. we, we use positive pressure ventilation? Sure. So I do find it quite interesting that we don't appreciate that there are differences between spontaneous breathing and positive pressure breathing, so that IPPV. So in spontaneous respiration, we have to appreciate that it is all negative pressure based. And I find that completely fascinating. So it's a real um, powerful kind of movement from our from our body, from our patient's body. So what happens is we've got some respiratory muscles there. We've got intercostal muscles and we have our diaphragm. And our diaphragm, when that contracts, it goes from that nice dome shape to, it, it, you know, it flattens out and it kind of like moves towards our, our abdomen and our intercostal muscles contract and they move out. And then with that, you get air being sucked in to the lungs. So it's, it's all negative pressure. Um, and then, yeah, positive pressure is is different to that. So when we inhale under negative pressure, so spontaneous ventilation, everything contracts and those lungs end up pulling and they move, they get, they pull in air, they, the air gets sucked right in. And then when we exhale, it's all just passive elastic recoil. We literally just go, <sighs> and the only reason we would really be um, using our muscles to force our air would be if we were running for example, that's a real, you know, we really have to get that air out. Otherwise, it's quite a powerful movement when that diaphragm and intercostals, when they contract and they suck in the air. Yeah, absolutely. So so we're, we're looking at um, 
um, a negative pressure system. And I think the other thing is it's a compartmental system. In other words, we've got a compartment, we've got the thoracic compartment actually separated from the abdominal compartment. So when you create that negative pressure in the chest, you're doing a couple of things. And I think this is probably a good point to talk about it. It feeds into uh, mechanical ventilation, which we're going to talk about in the next uh, podcast. But when we go, when we use that spontaneous breathing pattern, you create that negative pressure in the chest and it, it actually forms part of what is commonly termed the thoracic pump. That thoracic pump is a term to describe the effect on the cardiovascular system when you create a negative pressure in the chest. So you create this negative pressure, diaphragm flattens, intercostals raise the ribs, you increase the volume, um, you increase the volume and uh, air has to come in to, to fill that volume, to, to equalize the pressure. So air comes in um, and equalizes the pressure, but in the time that it takes to do that, we've created negative pressure in the chest and that really just augments venous return to the heart because we've got a negative pressure. So it's a lot easier for blood that's in the abdomen to flow to the to the to the chest. Because in a sense that's being sucked there as well. There's there's a negative pressure pulling it in and it's pulling it from the head as well. So we've got the anterior and caudal vena cava being returned, being augmented by that that negative pressure. So that's part of the thoracic pump. Um, and of course once you open the chest or you don't have a diaphragm like birds or reptiles um, or you don't have a diaphragm because it's ruptured you lose that that um that thoracic pump mechanism and conversely when we when we apply positive pressure ventilation we're going to lose that, uh, that thoracic pump mechanism as well so we've got this nice mechanism that's helping us breathe it, it help, uh, the negative pressure draws in air and it improves the um cardiovascular return, so it improves, therefore, stroke volume and therefore cardiac output. So it's all related together. So in the spontaneous breathing animal, we've got a very nice balanced system that works well. When we come to do any sort of mechanical or manual ventilation, in other words, IPPV from whatever source, um, that intermittent positive pressure ventilation, we change everything. Because now the thoracic compartment, as a separate compartment, has become pressurized. So that, mm -hmm. that means that the, there's positive pressure in the chest. So it may only be a few centimetres, may only ventilate it up, up to sort of you know, 10 or 12 centimetres. But think that 10 or 12 centimetres is now positive and that's squeezing the, the vena cable returns. So that's got to impede return. It's only going to impede it during the period of which we apply that pressure, but it is going to impede it. And this is why you see all these things, we talk about them later, i.e. ratios have to be greater than one to two so that we don't overdo that that pressure um we don't want to apply too much pressure because again that's going to uh, reduce the return so keeping pressure as low as possible is a is a is a benefit and, a, and something we should we should look to do because that's going to improve our our venous returns so the difference between spontaneous and manual ventilation is big and the thing that differentiates the two is pressure not really volume what we're really worried about is pressure so in your experience corny um when when you've been in practice uh, um, applying um ippv when it's needed um you presumably squeeze the bag uh, on mm -hmm. occasions when there hasn't been a ventilator around before we get through to the mechanics of that what what are the implications not implications what are the indications for um manual ventilation when would you think okay this patient's not doing as well as I'd like it to do, or I'm anticipating this patient's going to have a problem. What are those scenarios that mean you're going to think about giving manual breath? 
So there's kind of three textbooky type reasons why we might ventilate, but I can definitely tell you in practice why I was often squeezing the bag, and that was because my patient was waking up. <laughs> so I was definitely trying to get the volatile agent into their lungs so that they weren't just going and kind of moving a very small volume back and forth. So I think when we look at the at the three very big reasons why we might need to ventilate our patients under anesthesia. One of them is because they might not be able to ventilate themselves. And that could usually, we talk about carbon dioxide and ventilation. So if the patient's entitled CO2 is raising, um, usually kind of over about 55 to 60 millimetres of mercury, then I would be looking to supplement that patient's breathing with some manual breaths. Um, or if I had to, I'd have to become a dedicated ventilator myself and give breaths continuously for the rest of that uh, procedure. And our patient might not ventilate being a bit of, of CO2. They might not be breathing enough, um, you know, with a deep enough breath or as frequent as they should be. If we have um, got kind of excessive anaesthetic depth, so if we have our patient excessively anaesthetized, perhaps with a volatile agent, we will just further depress that respiratory center that's in the brain. And we know that our volatile agent is a dose-dependent type administration and we get dose-dependent side effects. And if we are trying to depress the CNS to cause this unconsciousness so that we can operate, we can also just depress further the respiratory centre of our patient. So therefore, they might lose that sensitivity to the buildup in um, carbon dioxide levels that tell them that they should take a breath. Otherwise, heck, if we don't take a breath, we could get a respiratory acidosis. We could become a bit of a lemon. Um, we're kind of depressed that too much if our patient is too deeply anaesthetized. Also, some of our drugs, pretty much most anesthesias or most procedures or surgeries are going to have an opioid involved. Uh, so, you know, we've got opioids that will also depress the respiratory centre in the brain as well, especially we all know what it's like if you give a bolus of fentanyl or put a patient under anaesthesia on a fentanyl CRI, they will just stop breathing. So it's nice to be able to give them a few breaths through that as well. Um, but also we might, our patient might not be able to ventilate and get rid of that CO2 due to their body conformation as well. So they could be obese and therefore when they are perhaps laying on their back in a dorsal recumbency and their big bellies are pushing up onto their um up onto their diaphragm, we could have not only a reduce of uh, reduction, sorry, of functional reserve capacity or functional residual capacity, they could also have that big belly reducing their tidal volume. So on top of, you know, when they're standing on their four legs, wagging their tail, uh, walking into the into the practice, once we go and flip them onto their back and they've got all of that belly weight pushing up onto their diaphragm, their tidal volume can be reduced. And same with brachycephalics. They're built kind of very solidly as well. And they tend to not ventilate too well under anesthesia because they live their lives that little bit more hypercapnic, um, whereas they might not have kind of this trigger to take a breath until, I don't know, 60 millimetres of uh, like an entitled CO2 of 60 millimetres of mercury, once you go and put in these anaesthetic drugs, then you go and give them an opioid. Maybe they decide they don't want to have a breath until 70 millimetres of mercury, something like that. So I always try and ventilate these patients. Okay, I think that's, that's interesting. I think what that raises is there are, there's, I think, three points we take out of that. One is that manual ventilation is going to be on two possible terms. Either it's going to be sporadic and occasional. So these are the patients mm -hmm. that are spontaneously breathing, they're entitled CO2, you know, it starts off, you knock it out, and it's like 
48 and you think mm, okay that's a bit high but it's not too bad i'll see how it goes and then they're up to 53 and then they're up to 58 and then up to 62 and you kind of give them a couple of breaths or three or four breaths and um a minute and after three or four minutes it's back down to to 40 odd and you think oh, okay that's better now we're okay mm. um and then it creeps up again and you have this <laughs> it's okay for now <laughs> for now exactly so you have this yeah. where basically you're you're augmenting them because they're their breathing systems aren't terribly impaired. They're just minute volume is just that bit less than it should be. So you've got this occasional um, uh, ventilation pattern that you need to impose. So you just augment it. And then I think we've got the, the situation where you need total ventilation. You know, so some of the things we haven't yet talked about and we talk about in a minute, but you know, you've got an open chest, you, you know, there is no mechanism for, for the animal to breathe there. You have to ventilate for it. Or there can be other reasons why why we have to ventilate. And I say we'll cover those in a second. And I think the other very the third point that you you brought out there, I think the big fat dogs, the, the effect mm. on the diaphragm, the fact that the diaphragm represents or um is responsible for nearly 80% of the effort of breathing. Uh, I don't think we realise quite how much that diaphragm does. It's a kind of silent muscle. Uh, it doesn't often get tired and, and upset us, so we just we just don't we're not aware of it. But it sits there. You and I sat here now breathing. Intercostal is not doing very much. Most of it's been done by our diaphragms. So yeah, you start squeezing that and pushing it and stopping it from expanding or whatever, um, and it's going to have a marked effect on on minute volume. So yeah, those are the points I think we just wanted to pull out of that. We we got those. Occasional breaths, we've got total um, uh, ventilation, and we've got the effect of, of the, we're restricting the diaphragm. Mm -hmm. uh, all very important. So, so let's just look um, at you know why the patient wouldn't be able to ventilate to the point where we have to ventilate manually all the time. Where ideally we would perhaps use a ventilator, but in this instance, you know, we haven't got a ventilator, so we're going to need to do this manually. So, can you can you give us some reasons there where these what, what patients we would anticipate needing yeah full, sure. full support yeah yeah so when we, we've got our patients that can't just get off their co2 because of a reduction of minute volume sure we might do a bit of intermittent breath for them and maybe reassess anesthetic depth tilt the table everything like that but i think one of the other reasons that we're going to have to to do kind of long-term ventilation like you just mentioned is when we have like real impaired respiratory function um and that could be like you have already mentioned the moment that thorax is open, so it could be the diaphragmatic hernia. You know, we've lost that nice uh, compartment with the diaphragm separating the thorax from the abdomen. So we could have that hit by a car cat. Uh, perhaps you are doing a thoracotomy because the um, the patient requires a lung lobectomy. I have definitely seen a grass seed get right down deep into parts of the lung and actually require a lung lobectomy just because of a grass seed. Um, or it could be, uh, which makes me a little bit nervous, these kind of esophageal foreign bodies where you do have to open up um, different parts of the of the patient to see we're about to sit in. If it's very far down, we could be in a bit of trouble. Um, but if you do remove, if you remove that diaphragm and there's no more, there's no way that these patients can just have this nice um, air rushing in. Well, then we're going to have to ventilate our patients. It's not just a matter of supporting them a couple of breaths. We are going to have to ventilate our patients. Another reason could be uh, quite commonly in ophthalmology surgery, we give our patients a neuromuscular block and we paralyze all the skeletal muscles in the body just to centralize the eyeball for the ophthalmologist to operate. <laughs> 
And that will also, um, whilst perfect for the ophthalmologist to do the procedure because their eye remains nice and central, obviously in anesthesia, that eyeball often rolls down and away from us. So if you give this neuromuscular block to paralyze the skeletal muscles around the eye that move this eyeball, it will also paralyze our diaphragm. So we have to ventilate those guys because they absolutely will not breathe. Um, and they are one of my favorite surgeries to do, actually, one of my favorite anesthetics to do, because I do like the monitoring of, of and it's definitely not part of this podcast, but I do like monitoring how blocked our patient is and the breathing around that. And also, I think we must consider these patients that potentially have spinal cord injury. So the nerve that innervates the diaphragm, that's our phrenic nerve. And that kind of, I think that originates out of about C4, C5, C6. And if we have perhaps a, a fracture, contusion, swelling, even if we are um, doing like spinal surgery and we do a ventral slot where we approach the patient ventrally versus dorsally and we start pulling and moving things out of the way and stretching laryngeal nerves or uh, anything like that. If we have a patient that has a, a high spinal cord injury, I would definitely be considering that they perhaps are not able to move their diaphragm because of that phrenic nerve. And um, it's quite interesting, actually, if you are in the position where you do have an ultrasound of practice and perhaps you have a hit by car patient and you're really worried about head neck trauma is a lot of us with ultrasounds in practice will do a quick pocus at so that point of care ultrasound and we'll have a look in the thorax and we'll have a look in the abdomen for free fluid but you can also have a look and see if the diaphragm's moving as well so i think that's i i loved that when i found that out i was like oh that's quite great and then other reasons we might need to do long-term ventilation for our patients it could be those with head trauma we do need to ventilate these patients bring down the co2 which will bring down um help manage i guess intracranial pressure and and if we have a really prolonged GA or a patient that's quite cold as well, they might need our help whilst we're trying to warm them up and wake them up for a bit more longer term ventilation versus short term. And those are definitely my feelings from my experience. OK, so I think, um, yeah, so we've got some real indications there. There are situations where we've got to take over. You know, the ventilation is, is suppressed or uh, or is unable to take place in the normal manner, so we've got to ventilate. We have no option um, unless we go back to or start um, you know, using iron lung uh, ventilators yeah. with, with the negative pressure. We're stuck in the in the, in the you know positive veterinary surgery with positive pressure ventilation. Yeah. absolutely. So yeah. I, I think you mentioned earlier on about um, um, what you touched on really these feedback loops about the the CO2 feedback loop being suppressed by um, uh, narcotic agents, you know, volatile agents, opioids, that sort of thing. So what I wanted to sort of just mention is that when you go from uh, a spontaneously breathing animal, which has its own feedback loop, so it's monitoring its own CO2, it's that's feeding back to the brain, that's stimulating those those chemoreceptors, that's stimulating the um, the ventilation uh, centers of the brain, and it's breathing on its own. That's the nice feedback loop. Once we get to the point where, where the animal either breaks that loop because the, the, the depth of anesthesia is so high that it, um, it, the loop no longer functions, or we take over manual ventilation, then we are the feedback loop. And I think this is mm. the important point. We become the point that has to then look at CO2 levels ourselves, and we have to look at pressure levels our, ourselves because those are the two tools that we have. So it changes from, from uh, a normal physiological homeostatic feedback loop to a um, 
manual feedback loop and we the we are them we are the feedback loop so we've got to take over that role we so we really got to have the tools to do it so what i'm getting at in a long sort of uh, winded way really is to say if you're going to do manual ventilation yes you can do it by the skin of your teeth but if you really want to do it for long periods and, and be sure that you're doing a proper job you need to measure the pressure you need to measure the co2 level so you need capnography and you need some degree of uh, some manner of measuring the pressure within that circuit because without those you're really flying by the city pants you don't know what's going on mm -hmm. so uh, capnography is going to be a must um, and we need some sort of uh, uh, pressure system uh, sorry, monitoring for the pressure in the patient airway so we need those two things um, so I guess we kind of covered the reasons why we want to ventilate uh, I think they're probably you know, fairly Clear. You know, you know the ruptured diaphragm. Cat's going to need it. You know that the um, the neuromuscular blocked uh, agent uh, animal is going to need it. So, so there we are. Then we're at a point where we're going to want to ventilate this animal. We're going to knock it out, and we're probably, you know, if it's one of these cases that where it's not going to breathe on its own, we're going to start manually ventilating. So, I think we've got to think about what circuit that patient could be on, and we have, I think, in general practice, four possible common circuits. Um, which I, I hope you'd agree. We, we basically got the T-piece, we got the bane, we've got the the lac, mini lac, and we've got a circle system. Yeah. Um, and they behave differently. You know, they the circle obviously is, is out on its own. We'll probably cover that last because it's the easiest one to to, sort mm -hmm. of, to, to think about. Um, but we need to think about things like, you know, if we're going to manually ventilate on a on a lac system, that's a Mabel's an A system. Um, you know, that's the same as the old McGill type system. That's a Mabelson A. So we've got the bag that we're going to be squeezing in the um, the afferent limb, the limb that, that supplies the fresh gas. That's very different from having a bag in the efferent or exit limb, like a bane or a T-piece, where bag's in the exhaust limb, effectively. So we need to think about what happens when we start squeezing bags, because um, I think certainly when I went through um, uh, vet school, um, teaching manual ventilation wasn't something that was was done particularly well. I'm not sure it was covered uh, in any sort of detail. So I came out um, and, you know, if, if the ruptured diaphragm or the cat that I was working on uh, needed ventilation, I would occlude the end of the, the uh, bag on a T-piece, uh, give a breath, let it breathe out, give a breath, let it breathe out. And, you know, after four or five breaths, then I'd let it go and, and um, you know, I thought I'd given it four or five decent breaths. What I realized later was that basically the first breath was brilliant. I pushed in some nice fresh gas into the patient and subsequent breaths. If you're not careful and, and don't consider what you're doing, all you really do is give it four or five breaths of, of rebreathing its own CO2. So you just basically bumped up its uh, internal CO2 quite markedly. So we have to be careful about how we apply um, mechanical ventilation. Um, and I think we should maybe take some of these circuits and think about them individually. So what would you say is is the most common? You know, what's the most common circuit that people are using out there, Courtney? What do you think? I think I think pretty much everyone has a T-piece. Sure. OK. OK, let's focus on the T-piece then. So the T-piece is a, is a fairly simple system. Um, and let's be clear about what a T-piece is then, yeah? So we've got a fresh gas coming into a, a T-connector effectively, um, one limb coming from the fresh gas, one limb going to the patient and one limb going off to 
exit yeah through what is normally a fairly short tube sort of mm-hmm. about a foot long would you say something like that mm-hmm. 30 centimeters yeah. something like that and then that's your tea piece and then you may stick a bag on it which would be a modified tea piece and then there are all sorts of funny things that go on nowadays that bag you traditionally would be open-ended and that would just be a modified uh, tea piece so that bag would be there not for the rebreathing purposes of a TP system, but would be there for the ability to provide provide IPPV. And there are, of course, some circuits now where you have that bag, but it's not open-ended and it doesn't go off to scavenger. That's closed and there's a little APL valve put at the head and that, that then goes off to uh, scavenge. And I just want to make the point that that really is a tiny, tiny bane. You know, once, mm. you put a, once you put a closed bag, uh, on the end of a, what is a TP system and put a valve on it. Um, you may call it a T-piece and an surgical actually sell them as, as I think, pediatric T-piece systems. But, but functionally, because the valve is now there and you've got a, you've got a closed bag, it's actually a, a pain. But that's, a, that's me being, uh, being pedantic. So we'll stick with the T-piece where we've got the incoming fresh gas flow, we've got um, an exhaust limb and we've got a, a bag. So what we're going to do is we're going to... Um, somehow occlude the outflow of gas. So we're going to close, either close that, that valve or we're going to pinch the bag so that the um, gas can't escape and that bag will start to fill. And that's great because that bag will fill with fresh gas and then we can give it a squeeze. And, we, and by squeezing it, we then put gas, fresh gas, back down that exhaust limb to the patient. At the same time, we've got incoming fresh gas from the fresh gas flow and we're going to deliver um, a volume to the patient. And you will, you will see the, the chest rise. Now, I think there are two things going on here. One is we're delivering a volume, but we have absolutely really no idea what that volume is. So, and, we, and we can't even accurately predict it. Um, I, I couldn't say to someone, give this, this animal 86 mils of um, volume by delivering that, by squeezing that bag. And even if they could, you've got to take into account the incoming fresh gas from the, from the supply as well, because that's going to add to the, to the volume while you're doing that. So volume's out the window, really. We've got to be looking at pressure. Now, how can we assess pressure? You can do it, I can say, badly. You can do it well. You want to do it badly? Look at the animal's chest and watch see how much it rises. That's, that's a, an indication, but a poor indication. Why is it a poor indication? Because the chest will rise with the increased pressure. But what happens if the, pressure, you know, the chest rises to a point where you know, it's reached its pressure limit? What happens then? Well, those lungs continue to expand and they could be pushing the diaphragm back. You know, you see no, no further increase in, in uh, rising of the chest, but you're now pushing the diaphragm back and you're creating a lot more pressure in the lungs, even though you don't see an increased rise in the chest. What if that chest is, is restricted by instruments, surgeons, um, weights or pressure on the, on the chest or this position in a trough, you won't see that expansion. So we can't use expansion as a, as a guide to our pressure, we really, if you're going to do it properly, you need to use a um, some sort of in-circuit pressure uh, monitoring. And that sounds really expensive, but um, there are some really nice, cheap pressure manometers out there that you can put in line that will just do this for you. And then, and, and then they're, you know, they're tens of pounds, you know, 20, 30 pounds, and so easy to use that you can now know what pressure you're, you're applying. So there we are. There's our TPs. We've, we've let the bag fill up. It's full of fresh gas. We give a squeeze. Now we're looking at some pressure. We're going to take it up to a pressure. And we're talking about a cat, so we're going to go up to maybe eight, nine, ten centimeters of water. And then what do we do? Well, 
if it's a simple T-piece, we can simply release that open-ended bag, let that air, uh, let the animal breathe out passively, and then wait. And this is the important thing. We'll talk about this on, on all the systems we, we're going to use for IPPV. We must have a pause period because what we want to do is let that animal breathe out and it'll fill the expiratory limb with waste gas full of alveolar uh, uh, CO2 rich um, gas. And then we must allow time for that fresh gas to be, or the, sorry, the fresh gas that's coming in to then push that out along that limb, the, the exhaust limb of the T-piece, either into the bag or through the APL valve or whatever we've got there and to waste before we begin the next breath. Because if we begin the next breath beforehand, then we'll push uh, CO2 back into the patient. And all we'll be doing then is, is rebreathing. So we'll be delivering oxygen, but we'll actually be you know, increasing its internal CO2 and its um, and its body CO2 content. So we've got to allow that pause, and that pause is really important. So it's occlude, squeeze, one second of inspiration. So again, something we I didn't mention. When you're going to do it, you're going to create a natural length of inspiration. And most of this is about a second. If you're trying to do a Great Dane, you're probably going to give that maybe nearly two seconds of inspiration. Um, but essentially, one second. Squeeze, raise the chest, look at the pressure on the manometer, get it to the point where you want it, and then release. Okay, and then that passive expiration will will take all the gas away from the patient. We allow um, a certain time for that expiratory limb to be filled with fresh gas. Then we can begin the process again. I think that raises a question, and I know I'm probably going to go off on a tangent now about TP circuits because I get quite excited about it. But <laughs> I think I think people look at TPs and they think, oh, that that little bit of tubing there, that's that's the that's just for the exhaust. So what I don't think people probably realize is that the volume of that is very important. And you know, it has to be a minimum volume um, for a spontaneously breathing animal. Otherwise, you're gonna the animal's gonna be rebreathing or diluting fresh gas from from the environment. So that length of the tubing is important. Um, it's also important when it's breathing out that, that it's gonna fill that with its alveolar gas. And you have to allow that that um, volume to be filled with fresh gas afterwards. Mm -hmm. So in any situation where you're going to be performing IPPV manually, you have to consider that volume. And it's not so important on a TPS, it becomes more important on a Bain. What about the fresh gas flow that's coming into that patient at the time? If you leave it at it, say we're on, say we've got our catamaran on 2.5 litres a minute, um, and we want to, to manually ventilate that cat, then it's probable that we were going to need to, um, if we want to ventilate rapidly, we're going to have to in increase that fresh gas flow rate. My advice would be, if you're going to ventilate an animal, use catnography, ventilate it slowly. I think the biggest thing that gets done is people try and ventilate animals way too fast. You know, it's like push, push, push. Well, no, I think that, you know, if you're going to ventilate an animal, ventilate it slowly. Allow at least four or five seconds between every breath. That means you're down to sort of 12, 10 breaths per minute. That should be sufficient. If it's not, then you can increase it. You'll see that on your countergraph. But let's not rush into it. Um, and the and the essence of IPPV is allowing enough time for the fresh gas flow to clear that limb in a TP system. And again, we'll talk about the other systems as well. So I think does that accord with what you're uh, used to seeing in practice or what you've seen in practice for uh, IPPV with a TP system? 
Oh, this is where I can talk about the old Courtney and the now I know Courtney. <laughs> because I think the old Courtney, you just, you think, I've got a TP, so I've got to give a couple of breaths to my patient. I'm going to do exactly that. I'm going to close the APL valve um, on my pediatric TP. So I'm going to squeeze it two or three times and then I'm going to open it. But actually, without capnography, I probably was just making my patient rebreathe everything. Um, I like you said, the first breath is great. It's nice and fresh and full of fresh gas. And then really, if I let that expiratory breath go back up the expiratory limb, so the clear limb, towards the bag, not consider letting it out of the scavenge or considering the time in between the breaths, and then giving another breath, I'm I'm pushing that CO2 back into the patient as well as some of the fresh gas. And then I'm just doing that two or three times. So I think the the old Courtney just thought, oh, of course, it's got this really high fresh gas flow rate. There's just so much fresh gas. That's what a tea piece is. It's so fresh. And then I probably was doing a bit of a disservice to my patients. But now I appreciate that we really have to slow it down, no matter really what breathing system we have, slow it down. Um, and look at the capnograph as well because i bet you if you try and if you just do it on your next patient for a for a bit of an observation just give a few quick breaths on a t-piece and have a look at your capnograph at the same time and you will get a non-return to baseline and you will get that staircase going up um, and i think without appreciating how the breathing systems worked or having capnography i had no idea what i was going i just benignly thought going on I just benignly thought I was doing a good thing for my patient so yeah I found it very very interesting and a bit of like a light bulb moment when I realized oh no of course we have to allow that fresh gas if we if we need that fresh gas flow to flush out a spontaneous breath what is the difference we need that fresh gas flow and that time to do the same for when we're ventilating yeah and I think one of the things is that um it, there is a lot of um, uh, usage of these pediatric systems which got the valve in them. And it's not a simple matter to close the valve, squeeze the bag, release, open the valve, wait, whatever. So I think, you know, I've only been aware of it recently in maybe the last two or three years, these little IPPV button valves. Um, I think there's worth mentioning here because it can make your life so much easier because what one of these, one of these valves do is they're basically an inline on off valve but it, they're spring loaded with a little button so that you put them on the exit from your apl valve on your pediatric t-piece um or if you just had a standard t-piece with an open-ended valve you could put that um that valve on the exit from the t-piece into your scavenging system um and all you do is push the button down and it closes the airway that that airway then it, you know passage through that valve is then blocked and then that's the same effect as closing the APL valve, but it is immediate as soon as you release it because it sprung, it opens again. So you can do this with one hand. You can close the, the um, IPV button uh, valve with one hand, and in the other hand, you can be squeezing the, um, the bag itself. And then when you want to release the breath, you just release that button. And it saves a lot of faff with trying to close an APL valve, squeeze the bag, open the APL valve, let the animal breathe out, and then release the bag and get that mm. coordination. So I think those little button valves are, are really good, and they're Again, cheap, you know, uh, 10, 15 or tens of pounds. They're not, you know, they're not very expensive and you can easily afford to have one in every mm. every theatre. So I think that one thing might actually be something that um, people should consider. And I definitely agree. I almost think when they say 
an IV catheter can be some of your cheapest insurance for your patient to save their life because you've got direct access back into their um you know, their blood system if you need to give emergency drugs. I think an IPPV button valve is also some of the cheapest insurance you can have for your patient's anesthesia because I am definitely someone who's going to put their hand up and say, I have left an APL valve closed before. I have left a accidentally closed an exhaust valve and I haven't lost a patient, but I have been losing them um, just out of purely, not only is it a faff trying to hold a bag, do the APL valve, um, you could potentially forget about the fact that your APL valve is closed. And I would not be so brave to rely on these T-piece um, APL valves that come on the pediatrics that say it will open at, you know, at six litres per minute or something will open at 35 centimetres of water. Mm -mm. I have found my patient has got into a lot more trouble before that valve has even decided to leak a little bit. Um, and especially I think it's the bane say that they won't open till um, like 60 centimetres of water. And, and you're more likely to see the bane fly off the wall when you occlude, fly off your common gas outlet when you occlude the only exit port where your patient would be. So I think these button valves, you cannot accidentally leave the APL valve closed. You're not going to build up this pressure in your patient accidentally. You're not going to um, hear your your pulse ox go down, your ECG rates slow right down, your heart rate slow right down as you've filled up their chest, filled up their chest, up that patient's chest by accident, because that gas has nowhere to go. It can't go out the scavenge. So it's just going to build up and you very much can have um, a full bagel response and cardiac arrest from leaving an APL valve closed, which I have done about twice in my career. So I think it's the cheapest insurance for me just to have this little button, push the button, give the breath. You have no choice but to let it go and then ping, it's fine. It's open. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I, I, I think they're great little things. Um, um, OK, so I think just we'll, we'll just recap on that then with the, the TP. So if I was, uh, you know, I had a cat on the table and it was it needed occasional breath, then I would, um, if it really is occasional breath, then you can you can do that quite neatly. You can just occlude the output either way, close the APO valve or just squeeze it with your thumb if it's a open-ended um, uh, bag. Let the bag fill, give a breath, look at the pressure. Um, we're looking to say in a cat pressure of maybe nine, 10 centimeters uh, in about one second, and then just let go of the bag and the animal breathe out. Leave, you know, let, let the animal carry on spontaneously uh, breathing. And then if you need to do another breath, you know, a few minutes later, then you just, or you know, 30 seconds later, you do another breath. And because of the time between those breaths, you don't need to worry about the possibility of um, pushing for, uh, CO2 back into the patient, as long as you just leave it. After mm -hmm. it's breathed out, you just give it a couple of seconds and then you then you give it a breath. Um, if you're going to do prolonged ventilation with, with a TPs, then I would suggest that you increase your fresh gas flow rate um, more than you know your calculated minute volume times 2.5 or whatever is for your circuit factor. So you may have calculated it to be two and a half, three liters. If you're going to do repeated IPPV, um, you may need to put that up to four liters or more just so that you've got enough fresh gas flow to be flushing out that uh, expiratory limb between between breaths. Okay. So um, it, it, you are going to use a bit more uh, fresh gas, but I think that's a price worth paying. You can tune that if you like by looking at your capnography your actual catagram trace, see whether you've got any. When you're squeezing that um, back in, do you see that you've got an expiratory uh, normal wave? And then do you see it go back up again um, when it comes down to zero in phases? 
uh, phase zero comes back to the baseline, does it go back up again? Because it goes back up again, you're actually pushing CO2 back into the patient because that's the inspiratory uh, uh, phase. So have, have a look at that. Um, and if you find that you are, it is going back up, you've got a little blip on that lower line, or it doesn't go back to zero at all, then you need to increase the fresh gas flow. So I think IPPV with a TPC is relatively straightforward. Um, so we're going to look at a, a Bain now. A Bain tends to be used on larger patients. Um, and one of the things I think that people, again, may not be aware of is the, the size capability of a Bain is determined by the volume in the uh, expiratory limb between the patient and the bag. Again, that, that, that limb, that length there has a certain volume, and that volume dictates the size of the patient you can put on it. And typically, you know, with standard intersurgical systems, that'll give you something up to still 60 kilos or something like that. Beyond that, then what you find is that the exhaled breath fills that limb and actually starts to um, go into the uh, bag, which isn't a problem when they're spontaneously breathing. Doesn't matter if you put CO2 into that uh, reservoir bag. Um, but when you want to start manually ventilating, as we just described, you squeeze that bag. If it's full of CO2 or has potential to have CO2 in it, it won't be flushed out by the fresh gas. and You'll be pushing CO2 potentially back into the patient if that volume of the expiratory limb is less than the patient's toilet volume. Highly unlikely, because that would mean a you know, patient of the order of um, 60, 70 kilos. Just be aware that that's why what the limitation is on a vein system, on a standard intersurgical system, that volume dictates how big the animal can be. Okay, so vein system, um, I think, we, you know, basically this is a, a T piece that's now got a, a valve at the end of the exhaust port. Um, so we've got a one-way passage of gas, so gas can only go out through that, that APL valve, um, and being an APL valve, we can control its pressure. But I would say about APL valves, do not use the, the pressure guide on the top of the thing as a guide to the pressure, because if you look at some of them, uh, take a standard intersurgical uh, 0 to 60 uh, or 0 to 30, uh, so if you have it at 30 and you turn it back, you know, quarter way between 30 and and um, uh, zero, you think you're going to be about sort of 22. That's where you'd expect it to be. I can probably assure you that it will probably be nearer to something um, like uh, seven or eight. It's not a linear change. And if you have one of those goes naught to 60, then it's 60. Yes, it is 60, but it's fully closed. You, you eke it back, you know, uh, a quarter turn, and you're way, way down to... Um, 10 centimeters or so. It's not a linear thing at all. And the other thing is they're not reproducible. So where you think 10 centimeters might be on a certain valve, the next one, because they're all plastic molded and, and um, uh, you know, just put together with, with plastic springs, which are variable, it won't be in the same position for the next one. So be very, very careful about where you think the pressure is. You think you may be setting your APL valve to, to 20 or 10 and giving it a, a breath. You might actually be doing a lot less than that because it's non-linear. So again, another reason to have a uh, in-circuit manometer. Um, I, I keep talking about these in-circuit manometers. Um, Courtney, have you seen them? Have you used them? Do you know what, what I'm talking about? Yeah, I've actually had for a couple of years um, so you can buy two different types of manometers um, about zero to 25 centimeters of water and then zero to I think it goes all the way up to 60 um, and they've got they're, they're plastic you can put them pretty much anywhere on your breathing system no matter what breathing system you have most of the connections in anesthesia end up being 
either kind of like 15 millimeter or 22 millimeter connections and male or female and you can literally stick this manometer anywhere and it's kind of got like a it's like a speedometer really and you know when you you're in the bad bit of driving your car when your speedo goes a little bit red that's kind of the same thing when our pressure is building up so as you squeeze the bag and you look at the manometer there's usually like a nice green line green range that tells you oh this is quite a good range and then there's a bit of a, a yellow or an orange um part of our speedo been our pressure building up and then there's a red bit which is you've put in far too much pressure we don't care what you're doing this is quite a lot of pressure unless of course you're doing recruitment maneuvers which are completely different but they're just yeah these little plastic clear manometers and you can put them anywhere in your breathing system no matter what breathing system you have and you can put them in multiple different places so you might want to put it by the reservoir bag by the um on the inspiratory limb of the circle on down you can actually also put them down at the patient end in between the breathing system and the ET tube, but you will be increasing dead space. So I think if you can put it anywhere else, I often just put it everywhere else. But they, they are fantastic little things. I personally have the zero to 25 because I know I'm not really going to need to go higher. Um, but you can absolutely get them all the way up to 60. And yeah, you can put them on anything. If you do not have a manometer built into your system, which can be commonly seen with a circle system and um, yeah, you just get these little wee plastic manometers they're fantastic yeah. i think they're great too and i think maybe we should give some guidance you know if you're um new to ventilation and you know any type of ventilation what sort of pressure you probably get very worried about what pressures you can give and what can cause damage i think take it i mean i like round numbers so let's take a value of 10 i think you know if you if you're ventilating a patient and using one of these these sort of uh in circuit manometers they're not 100% accurate, but they're a very good guide. I would aim for something around 10. You know, if that's a cat, you might be slightly overdoing it, but not not dangerously so. If it's a you know a big sort of a spaniel, 20, 30 kilos, you might be slightly underdoing it, but again, not dangerously. So it's not a bad um, target to have for 10. So if you're worried and you don't, you know, you're not experienced, you don't know really what these pressures should be. I think a, a, a value of 10 on aim for 10 on that manometer. Uh, because there's, there's going to be a variation. Sometimes you'll hit 10, sometimes you'll hit 12, sometimes you'll hit 8. There'll be a variation around that. But I think aim for 10 and you're going mm -hmm. to do a, a fairly decent job. But one of the things I think I wanted to mention was, you know, we've run, uh, you and I, Courtney, have run this IPPV challenge at, um, at a number of uh, uh, meetings, BSAVA, London Vet Show, that sort of thing on the Burton stand. And I think what that highlights is it's great fun. People come along, they want to, you know, try the hand at, IPPV, manual IPPV, see how, how, how good they can be. But I think the one thing it highlights incredibly is that unless you've done this for years and years and years, the ability to differentiate the back pressure when you squeeze a bag, be it on a little T-piece bag or, or a bigger bag in a bane or, or a lack circuit, you have very, very little concept of whether you're applying five centimeters, eight centimeters, or 20 centimeters of pressure. I mean, do you remember the, the, the challenges we've done? Have you been <laughs> surprised by the by the variation in pressures that people apply and the, and the inability to appreciate that? Yeah, absolutely. So we in this, um, just to give a bit, bit of background, again, just more background to yours, Keith, we would challenge people to ventilate a patient um, with three different pressures, 10 breaths per pressure. So we would go for under ventilating, so six centimetres of water, six or seven, I think, and then a nice 11, 
so a bit more than your round number. And then we would ask them to kind of semi overdo it. And I put overdo it in like inverted commas because it's for most patients, they're not going to need about 17 centimeters of water. And then people are like, oh, yeah, that's fine. I, I do IPPV every day. And we think, okay, start with the tiny little pressure of six centimeters of water or even the normal pressure of 11 centimeters of water. And their first squeeze ends up flying right up to about 24, 27. 34 centimeters of water and you think oh my gosh you know it's actually we, we really don't have any idea what we're doing unless there's a manometer so I think I was surprised perhaps as well because I felt confident in how I was ventilating my patients without knowing what pressure and then even when I gave the competition a go uh, I was like oh there's no way there's no way that was 30 31 centimeters of water but it was it it was so I think I was I was shocked, actually, because it didn't feel like that. But how do you know? How can you really feel those pressures in the bag when fresh gas flows? You know, if you have a fresh gas flow of two litres per minute and then you need to change it to four litres per minute, the way the bag feels is different. Um, did you have the APL valve closed the whole way when you gave the breath? Did you have a full occlusion on the open end of that tail reservoir bag for um, the modified TPs? There's so many factors. I really don't think you can truly appreciate what pressure you are ever reaching. So I, yeah, was definitely shocked. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I think it's um, you know, it does surprise people how difficult it is. And so that's why I think yeah, you know, whatever you do, get some sort of pressure measurement for um, for your patients if you're going to you know, use IPPV. Okay, so I think we we kind of looked at the uh, the TP system. We've got some guidelines on pressure, and the pressure applies to to everything really, uh, any system. So the next one to look at, I think, maybe is the Bain, uh, another commonly used circuit, which really is just an extension of the TPs, um, and it, you know, it is a lot larger, uh, accommodates a lot larger animals. But we've got the same principle really. We're going to um, close the APL valve, or if we're lucky, we use a little button valve, we're going to close that button valve. Either way, we're going to we're going to remove the exit from the expiratory part of that circuit, close it off, and then we're going to squeeze the bag. And we're going to force um, gas back down the expiratory limb into the patient. And at the same time, there's still going to be incoming fresh gas from the fresh gas supply. So I think this is why the feedback is difficult on the, on the IPPV uh, challenge. You've got the factor for the incoming fresh gas flow you cannot appreciate because if it's at two litres a minute and you squeeze that bag, you may deliver 100 mils by uh, squeezing that bag, but you don't know whether 60 mils, 80 mils or 20 mils has been delivered by the fresh gas. So you don't really know the total volume delivered and hence you don't really know what the pressure is going to be. And it will change with the fresh gas flow rate. So that makes mm -hmm. it quite difficult. So I think, um, yeah, just, just to highlight what you said, really, it's a very difficult thing to assess. So, um, so talking about the bane, um, we're going to do the same thing. Um, squeeze the bag. First breath is easy. It's all fresh gas as long as we've allowed enough time from the last breath or fresh gas to, to flush out that um, expiratory limb. Um, and just did some quick calculations before we we came on air here. Um, you're going to need to leave something like about four seconds between breath and you're going to have to need have a fresh gas flow of something around about four liters per minute something like that to ensure that every breath is that you give delivers fresh gas back into the patient the smaller the patient uh, on a pain then the the more relaxed you can be about those timings but let's take your your 25 30 kilo 
um, dog that's come in, your bitch pee, your Labrador bitch pee. If you're going to give that um, augmented breath on a repetitive basis, then squeeze the bag, take it up to the pressure of 10 or 12, then release the button valve or release the APO valve, let the animal breathe out, then release the bag, and then allow four seconds for fresh gas flow to fill that expiratory limb. Now you're in a safe position to repeat the process without squeezing CO2 back into the patient. So again, same principle, slow, allow time for that mm -hmm. fresh gas flow to empty that limb, and then um, give it another breath, but you need that time. And if you've got a larger patient, you will probably need to increase that fresh gas flow. And I would think that unless you've got catnography, if you're given an occasional augmented breath, always increase the fresh gas flow rate, give you know, four or five breaths, Put the fresh gas flow rate back down and we'll breathe spontaneously. If it's going to be repetitive and continuous, then you may need to keep that fresh gas flow rate higher anyway. But be guided by the um, catagraph and, and be guided by how much pressure you're using by the little manometer. So I think because the, the Bain and the, and the TP circuits are, are very, very similar circuits, that procedure is the same. So what we should look at now maybe is, is someone that's using a, a mini lat circuit, a LAC or a McGill, where we've got that, that bag on the um, incoming side on the fresh gas flow side. And I know it's taught in, it was taught to me, um, and it's probably taught to to the, the nursing students as well, that um, uh, systems like the uh, the LAC, the Mibelsen A, are very efficient for spontaneous breathing, but very bad for uh, IPPV, whereas the T-piece and the Bain are inefficient for spontaneous, but uh, better for IPPV. Um, and if we look at what a LAC or a McGill circuit consists of, begin to see why. Um, with the with the bag on the inspiratory limb and a valve, what happens is is if you squeeze that bag, which is you know uh, allow it to fill between breaths, the animal's given a breath, and now we've got a long pause, and you think you need an augmented breath, you squeeze that bag, close the APL valve, or use a use a button valve, whatever you want, close that exit, squeeze that bag and you will then put fresh gas into uh, the patient by forcing it down the inspiratory limb. But of course, as soon as you let go or the animal breathes out, it's going to push all its CO2 back up the inspiratory limb, not the expiratory limb like in the TP circuit, but up the inspiratory limb. And if the volume is large enough, and the patient's large enough, it may go into the back itself, and that would be quite a large patient. And typically talking about um, uh, lac systems or gill systems that have volumes of about 400 mils or a mini lac's got a volume of about 270 mils in that um, inspiratory limb and 270 mils is going to be way bigger than your patient's total volume so um what we've got to worry about is the fact that it's, we've squeezed it and it's the expiration has not gone down the expiratory limb it's gone down the inspiratory limb so we've got to be very careful now about what we do on the next breath, because if we give just another squeeze of the bag, we genuinely are just pushing that breath right back into the patient. So we have to be a bit more careful. We have to squeeze the bag, inflate the chest, and then release the pressure, keeping the bag squeezed, allow the patient to breathe out so that the bag is not full of CO2, doesn't fill with CO2. Um, and then um, we then wait. Um, and allow, and then we're going to release the bag once the uh, patient has breathed out, release the bag, let it fill with fresh gas, um, and then repeat the process. But it, in the same, in the sense, same as what we did with the um, 
the tea piece and beans. We just got to allow time. We just need to make sure that that inspiratory limb gets cleared of CO2 gas before we give the next breath. And I think, again, this is what tends to get overlooked. It's a timing thing. It's absolutely fine as long as you allow enough time for that fresh gas flow to empty that inspiratory limb. So uh, have you given IPPV, uh, Courtney, with um, systems like the LAC or the or Mini-LAC? I did always try to stay clear. Like if I thought when I was selecting my breathing system, if I was going to have to do IPPV, maybe it's a brachycephalic. I purposely wouldn't choose that system. However, if I did have to give IPPV with a LAC, I used to just increase the fresh gas flow. So take it from what would be a nice normal kind of like system circuit factor of one. Um, so 200 mils per keg per minute. And I would just increase it. I would just increase the fresh gas flow, um, knowing that I was no longer really using it as in its true true form of having such a low fresh gas flow. Um, and I was just hoping that that higher fresh gas flow was just flushing out that CO2. Um, and only really recently have I appreciated, in fact, another factor whenever giving IPPV with whatever breathing system the time is important as well in between. But definitely if I had to give um, some breaths with the lack, if I had to give some prolonged IPPV, then I was just increasing the fresh gas flow. Um, but now I also appreciate as well, I need a bit of time in between so that the fresh gas flow can do its thing and flush out that expiratory yeah. breath. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it, it, it sounds on the face of it quite a simple process to give to manually ventilate something but if you actually look at the, the the gas flows and you do the calculations and you do the math there's an awful lot going on which you know, mm. you're not aware of but thankfully it can all kind of be summed up by two things one is allow sufficient time between breath and two is increase your fresh gas flow if you've got any concerns increase your fresh gas flow and allow plenty of time between breath mm -hmm. and whether you're on a um uh, a mcgill lack or whether you're on a um, system like a T-piece or a Bain. The, those principles apply. Um, and it's very difficult, I think, for somebody in practice to really understand the full workings of T-piece and Bain or the uh, mini-LAC or LAC circuit. They're very complex in, in how they behave. And, and you have to think about the mixing of incoming fresh gas and the uh, amount either breathing spontaneously or you're pushing in um, manually yourself so without getting too bogged down into that just think about those two fundamental principles allow time and increase your fresh gas flow and then uh, you know whether it's a mini lack or lack um you'll still be safe and use your cat graph as, as a mm -hmm. indicator as to whether a you're pushing co2 back into the patient because you're not allowing long enough between breaths or b you're inadequately ventilating and the end tidal is continuing to rise or, or failing to fall so the cat graph really got to be a a big part in all of this um, and the pressure manometer has got to be a huge part as well otherwise you may just end up over pressurizing repeatedly and you know to kind of put it in context if we should be ventilating a cat at nine or eight centimeters of water and we're doing it at 28 that's not good you know it may not cause immediate pressure damage but you think about all those effects we talked about at the beginning the effect on the thoracic bump that's been abolished we seriously impeding there their venous return. So we may see some blood pressure effects as a consequence of our poor ventilation. So we've got to make sure that that's done correctly. Um, so, okay. So I think, does that, do you think that gives guidance for how to use 
manual IPPV with the three common circuits or the two circuit types, so the efferent and the efferent bag systems. Would you be happy with that as a as a sort of concept in practice? Yeah, I think it's a it's a nice way to you know the whole discussion has been a nice reminder that these circuits are not the same. They all work very differently. Um, we kind of have to appreciate the way that gas flows in them and how they how they work. But if we can just remember that if we slow it down to that respiratory rate of about 10 to 12 breaths per minute and turn up that fresh gas flow and utilize our capnograph, we are probably going to be okay for these patients. And then if we want to monitor that pressure, just get those in-circuit manometers as well. They are completely, oh, they're like gold and an IPP button valve. I kind of want, they're a bit too big to carry around in my pouch, but I definitely like to see them um, when I'm out and about. So I think it does provide a bit of context that not everything is the same and it's not just a benign squeeze the bag to give a patient the breath, but we just have to kind of understand. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you get to this, if you see the situation where someone's squeezing a bag, letting it go, squeezing about you repeatedly uh, without a pause in between, then whatever system they're on, they're almost certainly going to be you know, creating a, a, a large degree of rebreathing. Um, so that's that's probably one of the take-home messages. Okay, so I think the last one we need to talk about is the circle system, which is um, nice and easy to consider, really, because <laughs> all the work's done for you. If you've got a circle, then whenever you squeeze the bag, you will always force gas into the patient, and when you let it go, gas will come out of the patient but go back down the other limb because of the valve into the soda line. Uh, absorbing system so I've left it to last because it really is it is the easiest <laughs> it's the easiest and the nice thing is that you know with these little in circuit inline manometers you can put that on the inspiratory um, uh, limb where it comes out of the um, uh, circle you could put it on the expiratory where it goes back into the circle anywhere where you've got an airway connection straight down to the to the to the end of tracheal tube you can always you can also put it the et tube but as you said before that just increases dead space there's no real benefit there and it's nice to put it on the circle everybody can see it you can see it you can squeeze uh, and uh, see the pressure rise it may be that the circle's got its own uh, manometer anyway i mean the higher value ones do but the disposables the semi-disposables uh, tend not to so it's nice to have a, a one there that you can see so that's it with the uh, circle system you give nice gentle squeeze, create inspiration to be of the order of one second, allow the animal to breathe out, and then you can breathe as fast as you like, really, because the circle system will take care of the the uh, prevention of normal breathing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, and you don't need to increase your fresh gas flow rate either. You, know, you can basically just either augment breath or, um, or take over completely. So I, I guess um, we, we've talked a lot about these things, and maybe one thing just to mention, um, we can augment breaths. Uh, that's easy. You just do that between uh, the, the normal spontaneous breath of the animal. And if you're augmenting breaths, it's normally an extended pause because they're just not breathing properly. Um, or if you want to take over ventilation, then you don't need to do anything fancy. You just really need to manually ventilate, give those breaths in between the spontaneous ones. Use fairly long, deep, slow breath, but you know, significantly deep breath so that they actually get agent into them, you get CO2 out of them, and you will take over their ventilation pattern. They will stop breathing on their own if you continually to manually ventilate. Just to tell people, if they're not familiar with this process, that you know you can start ventilating manually between the breaths, 
do it repeatedly, and then the animal will stop fighting and you will take over ventilation. Okay, I think there's an awful lot more we could talk about, but I feel like we're probably coming to the end of this, this podcast. And we're going to cover um, some of these concepts in the next podcast where we start talking about mechanical ventilation. Is there anything you think I may have, have missed or we could just um, cover no, now? I think me? I think we went through it thoroughly. I think we could probably make this, we could double the length and keep talking. But I think, um, if anything, it's food for thought for anybody. And if they, you know, if you are listening and you do have questions, you can absolutely email us through and you can reach Keith and I on clinical support at burtons.uk.com. And if you just yeah, say I've got a question about our podcast, we'll we'll definitely spend some time answering that for you. Um, but no, I feel like this was a really good a good um good discussion. Good. Yeah, I think so too. I think it's a subject that doesn't really get talked about. Um, everybody assumes that they know what they're doing mm. uh, and everybody knows how to manually ventilate, but there are some little pitfalls in there I think we just need to be aware of. Okay, great. Well, I look forward to the next one, which is going to be about uh, mechanical ventilation. We're talking about ventilators, uh, how to use them, their effects, and and all the sort of um, associated side effects with those. And they'll be coming up in our podcast number six, which is number mm-hmm. six of series two. Anyway, thank you, Courtney. That's been an interesting Thanks, uh, discussion, and I'll speak to you very soon. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. Don't forget to follow our podcast to stay up to date with the latest episode and feel free to share with your team. If you have any questions or feedback for us or simply want to know more about what you've just heard, please send us an email to clinicalsupport at burtons.uk.com. Catch you next time.